Hello and welcome to episode 1018 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by you and also by Fangraphs, specifically also you being the Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. Today, we will be continuing our season preview series uh, talking about the second best and second worst teams in baseball. We are joined by Sahadev Sharma to discuss the amazing Chicago Cubs and Jack Moore to discuss the differently amazing Keon Broxton heavy <laughs> Milwaukee Brewers. But before we get into the previews, I believe Cubs first, I believe Ben has provided some banter for us. Yeah, well, one follow-up to our last episode, we had a quick conversation about pitchers who should donate their UCLs or their entire arms, preferably, to science. And we were talking about Randy Johnson, maybe, Nolan Ryan, maybe. Neither of them has responded to that conversation (laughs) thus far. However, Dan Heron has offered to donate his UCL to science, and I asked him if he meant posthumously, and he says he's not sure he needs it anymore. <laughs> so this could happen anytime. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's a thing. Science, uh, if you are interested in Dan Heron and uh, the way his body's <laughs> been put together, apparently he's offering it to you. So yeah. there's something there. Don't think he, he didn't have many injuries in his career. He uh, didn't have quite as long a career as either of those other two pitchers we were talking about. But still, no Tommy John on his resume. So if anyone wants a UCL, you know where to get it. <laughs> Dan Heron is your guy. And uh, another quick thing. There was a, a Ken Rosenthal article at Fox Sports about Matt Wieters and why he is still available at this late date in the offseason. And Scott Boris is heavily quoted in this article, as one would imagine. He is Matt Wieters' agent. And the theory here, I don't know whether it's advanced by Boris or by Rosenthal, is that Wieters' framing statistics are hurting him in free agency. And I don't know that I totally buy that in that Wieters hasn't been a terrible framer. He's, what, been a a few runs below average according to BP stats in each of the past few seasons, Mm -hmm. which is not great. People want great framers. He is not one, but I can't imagine that many teams would rule him out based on that if they thought he was good in other areas. Anyway, that seems to be Boris's theory that the lackluster framing stats are hurting him. And so Boris came up with this reason to explain why the framing stats don't matter or are skewing things in Wieters' case. And Boris, of course, he's notorious for coming up with statistical cases that favor his clients that are not always the the most rigorous. (laughs) And various people have debunked Boris cases. There was a a Jeff Zimmerman essay in this year's Hardball Times annual about a, a kind of convoluted statistical argument Boris made about age and pitcher usage. Anyway, his claim about weeders and framing, he says that framing statistics are flawed. And he says that that's because framing is not as defining a metric because it's so pitcher dependent. Great catchers teach power pitchers to throw pitches that aren't strikes inside, outside, up, down because the hitters have to commit early because you have big velo. Your command comes from actually learning to throw balls. Hitters often swing at them. That's why velo pitchers are very, very effective in the ERA category with a catcher, but their framing statistics are going to be, well, less than the norm. That framing characteristic for a velo pitcher is a false effectiveness dynamic. The catcher is promoting the pitcher to throw the ball in the areas that aren't strikes because the hitters are less effective hitting it when it's not in the strike zone. 
And to support this contention, there's a stat that Boris's researchers came up with, and it's the 10 pitchers with the most called strikes last season had an average velocity of 90.1 miles per hour. The 10 with the fewest called strikes had an average of 93.6 miles per hour. And he cites a Greg Maddox quote about the goal is to get them to swing at balls, etc. So I'm trying to follow this argument, and I think it's a, a testable argument for one thing. One can look at whether power pitchers get fewer or more strikes using the the new stats that BP has put out recently. But I'm not sure that this logically holds up, at least as far as I can parse it so far, because I so the claim is that Weeters is a great catcher. And so he is especially effective at getting power pitchers, provided the Orioles have had any power pitchers, which is maybe a, a st- stretch to begin with. But but let's say that they have, they've, they've got Gossman, I guess. So the claim is that because he's so good at working with pitchers and because the smart thing to do with power pitchers is to have them throw balls, pitchers are throwing pitches farther from the strike zone when Weeders is catching and that therefore that would make his framing stats look worse. And I think it's that last part that I'm not sure computes, right? Because, you know, of course the framing stats make all sorts of attempts to adjust for pitcher and the pitcher's identity. And, you know, perhaps they don't do it perfectly, but if a pitch is thrown farther outside the strike zone, then that means it has a lower percentage chance of being called a strike and the catcher will not be penalized for that alone, right? At least according to BP's model, you won't hold it against the catcher because he didn't get a strike on a ball that was way outside the strike zone. No one gets that pitch, and so he won't really be docked much at all. So it seems to me that the way that the stats are computed sort of invalidates this concern. I don't know. Do you see it any differently? I read the article, and I was trying to follow Boris's argument until I stopped because I couldn't. I didn't really (laughs) know exactly what he was going for. I think... I mean, the whole argument about trying to teach pitchers to pitch out of the zone, it just seems like misdirection nonsense. I don't think that means anything. I do think there is something to the idea that power pitchers are more difficult to frame. I think it's also Mm -hmm. intuitive because, for one thing, the harder you throw, then the major leagues are selective for really good arms. And the harder you throw, the greater margin of error you have, the less precise you need to be. The softer your throw, well, you sure as hell better know where the ball is going. So, yeah, softer throwers are going to have better called strike numbers because they need to otherwise they wouldn't be in the major leagues so Mm -hmm. i definitely agree that there uh the harder a guy throws the more likely he is to be kind of wild and if you have a guy who's throwing 95 and he's a little wild well good luck to anyone trying to catch him now a point Mm -hmm. against weeders is he's had a teammate named caleb joseph who's been (laughs) a really good pitch receiver on the same team uh and yeah last year joseph had like a slightly worse catcher era which for one thing It's laughable that we're even discussing this in the first place. But just for reference, here are the top four pitchers that Joseph caught last year by plate appearances. Ubaldo Jimenez, far and away number one, followed by Dylan Bundy, then Vance Worley, who apparently was in Major League Baseball last year, and Tyler Wilson. Here are the top four for Matt Wieters last year. Chris Tillman, Kevin Gosman, Giovanni Gallardo, which is unfortunate, and Dylan Bundy. Bundy kind of cancels out. Gallardo is bad, and Vance Worley is bad. But Tillman and Gosman, yeah, those are like the best pitchers who aren't Zach Britton on the Orioles. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Weirs is going to have that advantage. Now, I was uh, 
I was curious and I went to Baseball Savant and last year there were, what is this, 88 catchers who caught at least 500 fastballs. So four seamers, sinkers, and two seamers. And uh, Weeders did rank 18th in hardest average fastball caught at 93.3 miles per hour. So there's something there. I guess. Mm -hmm. But right below him is Tyler Flowers, who rates as a really good receiver. Jan Gomes is Mm -hmm. up there. I don't... He's been a good receiver in the past. I don't know what he was last year. There's some really bad ones up there, like GT Real Mudo, but then, oh, Jeff Mathis is at ninth. Mm -hmm. He's ahead of Weeders. So I haven't run a correlation because I haven't just bothered to yet, but hey, number one, Rene Rivera, really good defensive catcher, and he caught Mm -hmm. the average fastball that he caught was 94.5 miles per hour. So (laughs) I'm going to guess, just looking at this, that there's not much of a relationship. Joseph did catch, I guess, slightly slower fastballs on average than than Weeders did, but I think that we can at least say Matt Weeders is not a good pitch framer, and given that, and given that he's getting older, and that his bat just is not that great you might remember all the matt weeders facts when he was younger well whoops yep. <laughs> that kind of didn't pan out there are any number of reasons why he's still looking for work pitch framing is only one of them but i i think there's more working against boris's argument than for it agreed well before i guess we get to the team previews i wanted to insert one real quick piece of supplemental banter as well we've discussed trampolines in the recent past as basically death springs and things that you should avoid even (laughs) if you are not a professional athlete or one who supports his or herself with your body but trampolines horrible definitely should be avoided by all baseball players well i came across or at least i was linked to a video of a a baseball pitcher playing on a backyard trampoline the other day. The baseball pitcher in question was Felix Hernandez, who is dearly (laughs) beloved and one of the most important Seattle Mariners on the roster today. Uh, Not only does he have a trampoline installed in his backyard, it seems, but he was jumping on the trampoline. It's not that big. He was jumping on the trampoline next to one of his children, and also there was a dog running around on the trampoline while Felix was jumping. (laughs) Felix has worked extremely hard this offseason. His trainer has posted video after video of Felix working hard to gain strength in, in his lower body and flexibility, and he's really focused on having the kind of bounce-back campaign that Justin Verlander had a year or two ago. So hopes are kind of high that Felix is going to at least look a little more like Felix than he did last year, and here he is at the beginning of February, spring training right around the corner, just threatening to basically kill himself in his own backyard <laughs> and broadcasting it to the world. That it, it was not a video of him actually suffering like a high ankle sprain or whatever it is that happened to Jason Kendall at first base that one time. But I mean, I watched this through the through the hands over my eyes, essentially, because this is just the worst yeah. thing I can imagine. Yeah, I am revising my mental projection for Felix downward <laughs> after seeing this video. <laughs> yeah, because if there's one video, look, he has the thing installed in his yard. This is not the only time he's jumped. And no. he, if he's so careless as to have it broadcasted to the world that he's jumping around a dog and a child. There's nothing more unpredictable as a tandem than a dog and a child. And you're on a trampoline in your own yard. It's just so irresponsible. This, if he has a bad year, this video alone would be grounds to void his contract. Absolutely. Mariners wanted to do such a thing. (laughs) Or at least like renegotiate it strongly downward. This just, yeah, it, it breaks my heart. So big thing is coming 2017. (laughs) All right, let's get to the previews. Cross the sky, now sinking fast. Show me something built to last. 
So we are continuing our 15-episode season preview series with the second installment covering the Cubs and the Brewers. So first, we're going to talk about the Cubs with Sahadov Sharma, who covers the Cubs and ostensibly the White Sox for the Athletic Chicago. Of course, he wrote the Cubs essay for the Baseball Prospectus Annual, and he used to host this team preview series. So <laughs> he knows how this goes. Hey, Sahadov. Hey, what's going on, guys? How are you? Happy to be on my old podcast. Not my podcast, but yeah, something. Was, I did something. I, I had I did sort of stuff. for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I even podcasted while I was on vacation. That's how dedicated I was to uh, to making sure we did all our team previews that year. Yeah, team previews are <laughs> grueling. Got to get through everyone. You know, if you love what you do, every day is a vacation. It <laughs> <laughs> must be nice. So the Cubs, what was the Cubs offseason goal? Other than just savoring how last season went and savoring how good they continue to be, was there something that they had to accomplish? And if so, did they do it? Yeah, I think uh, there were a couple goals and it was just the overall theme was creating depth. They love their position players. So I think the only move uh, positionally was John Jay. And that obviously made sense because Albert Almora is still a little unproven. Obviously, he's unproven. We've seen maybe, you know, very little from him. No, he's a great defender. But outside of that, uh, is he ready to handle that full load on offense? That's why you have John Jay there with Dexter Fowler gone. And outside of that, it's all about depth, depth, depth in pitching. They've been, Theo Epstein kind of made it his obsession in the previous offseason to create this depth. And obviously came in huge with Kyle Schwarber getting hurt. And they, they were able to survive that because of their depth. I like to think that they were able to survive the World Series because of their depth. Uh, the, the Indians were kind of built as a team that the way Francona was using them in the postseason, they needed those short series. They couldn't get exposed. And uh, the Cubs were so deep, they were able to out... Uh, I mean, I, I think you could say they out-talented them, but they also out-depthed them. And, and that's just how the Cubs have been built. And they really wanted to create that with the relievers and with the starting pitching as well. Have they done it with the starting pitching? I think we've seen a lot of moves in the last few weeks to kind of make it make them feel a little safer, but it's not. It's an ongoing process because this is something that needs to be dealt with going into 2018 as well. I think they feel good today. Earlier on Wednesday, they made a deal to acquire Alec Mills from the Kansas City Royals. I think that matters in the sense that there's another six starter to go along with Eddie Butler, to go along with Rob Zestrisny and all these guys that they have in AAA, Jake Buchanan, Seth Frankoff, these guys that really aren't impact arms. You know, I think they have high hopes for Eddie Butler if they can fix something there or, or maximize some of that potential. But it, it just creates depth. So you're not talking about, uh oh, uh, Brett Anderson's hurt again and now Mike Montgomery goes back into the starting rotation what happens if John Lackey gets hurt what happens if you know someone uh, you know has a barking back or shoulder or elbow or or just needs to go on the DL you feel a little more comfortable with those guys than than the previous uh 
depth that they had. And and it also helps them going past 2017. And with the bullpen, it's Koji, it's Wade Davis, it's Brian Densing, it's uh, Caleb Smith. All these additions just really add to the depth of guys that are already there with Pedro Strope and Rendon and, and CJ Edwards, guys that they like a lot, like Justin Grimm. So they have the guys that they like, their core in the bullpen, and now they're just trying to create that redundancy. That's what uh, Theo loves to call it. And uh, it, it just seems like... Uh, it worked out well, really well, obviously, last year. So now they're, they're trying to repeat that and while also keeping a little eye on the future for the starting pitching. I want to laugh about the idea of finding starting pitching depth from the Rockies and the Royals, but I guess the Cubs <laughs> did find some starting pitching depth in the form of Jake Arrieta from a desperate Orioles team. So there's there's that. You never really know which team can figure what out from which players. Uh, I didn't know they got the Alec Mills. That's a headline story. (laughs) But I guess I have a question that's maybe less about the Cubs themselves and more about those who observe the Cubs. But, you know, we kind of know what happened uh, last year. So we're doing this Cubs preview. And uh, what's the point? Like now, what uh, what are you in it for now? This is this is new. Obviously, this is new to you. Yeah, what 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 are Cubs fans in it for? What's what's the point of this season going forward? Well, I mean, I I think it's yeah. You you got yeah. it. Take it running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you know, it, it's it, this team is set up for a dynasty. They have a lot of work cut out for them. Obviously, it's not easy to do uh, to build a dynasty. But you look at the offensive core, Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer, Jason McLeod, all those guys, they now look at it as how do we maximize this four or five year window of the offensive talent right now though at the end of 2017 they have major holes in the rotation they know that and they're scrambling and constantly thinking of creative ways and and when you say i agree eddie butler alec mills those aren't the type of guys to (laughs) to really uh you know excite a fan base but look at the guys that would have uh started had they not signed brett anderson it after after Montgomery, it was it was Rob Zestrisny who has you know one start I think in the big leagues and yeah he looked impressive but his resume is just not not that great he's he's struggled for most of his minor league career and we're talking about Aaron Brooks Jake Buchanan Seth Frankoff and I keep saying I've said that name twice now I didn't know who he was until Theo Epstein mentioned him as starting pitching depth at the winter meetings so these are the type of guys that that they had as if they had an injury they haven't had a major injury in a long time uh, so it's almost like well you're just asking for it to happen if especially when when your depth guys are you know not really the type of arms you want when you are expected to be at or near the top of the game uh, of baseball. So I completely agree with what you're saying there, but also it, it is, it's all about the dynasty. That's what, that's what it is going forward. Uh, I said it before last season and I felt insane saying it, but looking at that offensive core, I said, well, that's what, you know, they have this ridiculous collection of talent. And if you hit, on a lot of these guys now you have a ton of impact offensive talent at the major league level and they had they hit on a lot of those guys and i'm just insanely high on kyle schwarber after what he did in the world series i i just it, 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 i don't think it can be overstated uh what how impressive it was to be you know, six months off of baseball, and then all of a sudden be hitting Corey Kluber, taking a walk off Andrew Miller, and impacting the World Series in a significant way. He was not just up there as a prop. He he was a legitimate bat in that lineup and made it almost feel whole 
it was almost like what well they had been missing something from the offense uh, once he stepped to the plate you kind of saw what kind of impact he could have and just how crazy of a ceiling maybe that offense is so i think i think it's just all about capitalizing on this offensive core uh, how do they do that and just how good can this uh, team be in the next three four years it's an enviable position to be in because any team that wins a World Series gets a grace period of sorts afterward. And, you know, some teams are bad not long after they win the World Series and their fans are kind of okay with it because, hey, they just won. <laughs> and with the Cubs, I mean, even if this core only wins one World Series, it's a World Series for the Cubs and it ended the incredibly long drought and so that alone seems like it's made this team a success and if they can keep winning and build on that then that's even better but you know like if this team won 90 games or something over the next few years and made the playoffs a couple more times and you know made some runs but never actually made it all the way again people would still look back on this and say hey Theo Epstein great job built a World Series winner, ended the curse, and that's a success, sort of, I would think, unless maybe Cubs fans are more impatient than I am giving them credit for. No, I think I think Cubs fans, the majority of them are soothed now. They have their World Series. There are plenty of people who are going to want more. I mean, you know, I was in this town when the White Sox won, and it didn't. It wasn't uh, immediate for people calling for uh, the White Sox to to get back to the promised land. But it happened after three, four years. People, you know, they were they were done. It's like okay, we need a, a impact team once again. What's going on? And obviously, the White Sox are a completely different story and, and struggling quite a bit. But I think if it goes downhill quickly, you'll hear some clamoring and wondering how did that happen. That's not what this is. You know how how could this possibly happen? Look at the core that we had. How did they blow this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, I think they have a definitely a little bit of a grace period here. It's it's uh, I don't think Cubs fans are going to come down from the high too quickly. It it was uh, a, I mean obviously it was the greatest World Series, one of the greatest World Series we're ever going to see. Just the, uh, the drama, the the impact of the two teams that were involved, and then you add in you know, the historic nature of the Cubs winning a World Series. This city was insane for quite a while, and uh, you couldn't... uh, There are a few things that could bring them down from that high. I guess uh, a week later was the election, so we did come down from that high. (laughs) And there's all the the carnage (laughs) on the streets as a consequence. Uh, So, speaking of coming down from the high, to what extent have you or, or did you laugh or... Maybe if not laugh, what was your response when you look at not only currently Fangraph's projected standings have the Dodgers just one obnoxious fraction of a win above the Cubs in terms of projected record. And then, of course, the uh, the Pakota projections have come out. I think they've been tweaked a few times, but according to the most recent update, I can't even this is weird for me to say out loud. Cubs 92 wins projected. That's not weird. They're easily the uh, the best team in the central, but the Dodgers are at 100 wins. A hundred wins. Oh, wow. There's an eight-game <laughs> clearance between the Dodgers and the Cubs. The Cubs are predicted for a worse record than the Astros and the Indians. So, I mean, <laughs> we just talked I, to Andy McCullough the other day, who is who said that the Cubs are hands down the best team in baseball, and you know he covers the Dodgers. So, what is your response <laughs> to this? Because I sure don't have one. I'm surprised. I, I saw it at 98 yesterday or the other day, and now I. 
and I thought that was high, but I understand, you know, I know Pakoda is not perfect. None of these projection systems are perfect. So I wasn't going to throw my arms uh, up and say, what the heck's going on? How dare Pakoda do this? Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm a little surprised that the Dodgers are the clear best team. I just, I like their team a lot. And I guess if uh, if I was asked right now to pick a World Series winner, I may go that route just because I'm, I want to change it up. But I think there's four clear best teams for me. And I think it's the Cubs, Dodgers, Indians, and Red Sox. Uh, I think, uh, I don't think there's an eight game gap between the Cubs and Dodgers. I don't think there's an eight game gap between any of those teams. Uh, it's it's really surprising to me, but I, I guess, you know, I, I need to, I, I probably need to spend some time to look at exactly why Pakoda thinks that, but that's when I saw it, I was surprised. Uh, and I know that the Dodgers are a great team. I just think the Cubs are, it, it'd be hard to argue that they're eight games worse than the Dodgers for me. I, I don't see any real good argument in my mind, but I also know projections are an imperfect science and one little quirk or uh, inability to really appreciate one aspect of the game can can throw things for a loop so you know that's they they have their uses and i'm not going to (laughs) criticize criticize the projection system but i yeah i have no good explanation for eight game difference between dodgers and cubs eight games (laughs) (laughs) so uh we're going to be seeing Kyle Schwarber leadoff hitter. Oh man, uh, Joe Madden really likes that idea. We he he kind of teased us with it at, at winter meetings, and then uh, the week before Cubs convention, the Cubs have this uh, a bunch of charity events, and and Joe gave us his uh, his January, I believe it was January twelfth at the time, so January twelfth lineup. If it were against a righty, and he had Schwarber at the top there. The fact that he's filling out a lineup, an imaginary lineup on <laughs> on, on January 12th shows you just how excited he is to put together a lineup. I think he may do it. I think he's going to experiment with it. I, I think he likes having Zobrist in the middle of the lineup. He likes that contact guy in the middle of the lineup. And, you know, Hayward kind of was that contact guy, but now he you don't want to put too much pressure on him right now because they're there that like to kind of ease him back in and, and hope he rebounds after just a dreadful season. So yeah, I think we're going to see Schwarber at the top. Uh, it's a little unconventional, obviously, but they don't have that perfect uh, leadoff guy anymore. I think Jed Hoyer put it well. There aren't that many of those guys, you know, maybe a dozen of them. Uh, Fowler is one of those guys and you kind of don't like try and force it. Now you don't, you don't put the, you don't find who's your fastest guy. You know, you just, who's your center fielder you know that those old school mentalities that's not how this team's gonna work so so they're what are they looking for they're looking for the the best on base guy that makes a lot of sense for them and i I think they see that as as schwarber as a guy that makes sense get your best hitters uh the most at bats and you're talking about schwarber bryant rizzo at the top (laughs) that's uh, that's pretty terrifying for a pitcher to come on to uh, step onto the mound in the first inning and have to face that down eight games (laughs) a hundred to nine okay so i want to read we we are all familiar with eight games that's so ridiculous we're all familiar with the fact that the cubs had like a a historic historically good defense some of that as a as ben actually researched in an article was the uh, quality of contact allowed by the pitching which was good but in terms of babip we're going to say it babip now on the podcast Uh, i don't know (laughs) 
what the rule is, but that's what it is. BABIP. So BABIP relative to the league average. Y'all ready for this? So Cubs last year, 43 points better than the league average defense by BABIP. 43 points better. That is the best of all time, where all time is limited yep. at 1900. There are two other Cubs teams in the top 10 for uh, the best BABIPs of all time relative to the league. Those Cub teams, instead of being from 2016, were from 1906 and then 1907. It's been a while. So <laughs> outstandingly good defense. Second place on this table was 36 points better than league average. So that's already a seven-point difference between the Cubs and second place. So the long and short of it is if you had to guess or make your own prediction or projection, if you will, of, uh, of how good the Cubs BABIP is going to be this year relative to the league average, given what they've done, all the moves they've made, what would you think? It's all, I don't know if I could just want to go off BABIP, but if we just look at the defense and look at who's going to be playing where, first of all, I know people worry about Kyle Schwarber's defense, and that's fair. I don't know if he'll ever get to average. I, I know he has the work ethic to get there, but take a look at who played left field for them. And it, last year, majority of the time, there was no plus defender in left field. Very rarely did they have a good defender in left field. So so they were able to do have a historic defense with a below average left fielder majority of the time. So I'm going to knock that out as, a, as an issue right away. I would argue, and I don't think many would argue against it, that Almora is a better defender than Dexter Fowler. John Jay is probably a tick below, maybe significantly below. How that works out with playing time, there's a chance that you have a better center fielder majority of the time. And then second base, you're going to have Javier Baez there for maybe 90 to 100 games. It's going to be interesting to see how Joe really works this out, how he uh, uses Zobris and Baez. But I think uh, from the sounds of it, just uh, reading between the lines, I think it's going to be Zobris moving around more than Baez. And Baez, we've seen the numbers, we've seen what he does with our eyes, and he's just an elite second baseman. So you're talking about improvements at second base and and center field and then Wilson Contreras behind the plate as well is no slouch either. So so you're talking about possible improvements. I don't know if that uh, equates the BABIP definitely <laughs> is going to be uh <laughs> you know significantly better than the league average. I think it will be better than the league average. I don't know if we're going to see, you know, 2016 and 2017 clubs as the two best BABIP uh, relative to the league of all time. I don't know if we'll see that, but I, I'm not going to bet against this defense. Addison Russell special, uh, Baez is special, Elmora is special, Hayward special. You have multiple gold glovers all around there. I think they can be just as good. And, you know, it's kind of Joe's trying to push this deep heat uh, saying, I'm not sure if it's going to catch on, but that's uh, <laughs> that's his theory of why they are why they have a good chance to win it all again is because defense doesn't really slump. And you're not going to see a big dip in defense because you, you're bringing back and possibly improving in, in certain areas. And, and I think that that is a big reason why you feel comfortable that, hey, maybe the pitching isn't going to be as dominant, but the defense is going to pick them up and, and make them look better than than perhaps they are if they do take a step back uh, with overall talent. But uh, yeah, I, I love this defense. I, I'm, it's, I'm happy that I get to watch it every day, and I, I try not to take advantage of the fact that I'm uh, 
you know, try not to forget that I'm watching something special because one of my one of the reasons I fell in love with the game is watching, you know, defensive highlights. I think that was one of those things back when I was a teenager watching Sports Center and highlights. It was always the web gems, right? That was uh, one of our favorite one of my favorite segments and to be able to see that every day and be paid to do it is is uh I'm not going to complain. <laughs> Would you say that they play some easy D? <laughs> oh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut off Ben Topical. here because I know he has Topical. the next question, but I, I want a number out of you because last year the Cubs 43 points better than the league average Babbitt, right? 43. Okay. Second place in baseball was 16 points better. The Babbitt Jeez. went Cubs 255, Blue Jays 282, Giants 287. Absurd. <laughs> so just you know, top of your, I already pulled the Fangraphs audience last fall about this to see what they thought, and I never checked the results because who does that? But if you had to actually just hang your... If you had to guess a number, like the 50-50, the tipping point number, where would it be? I guess you can just assume a league average of of 300. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'll go aggressive and say there'll be 30 above, and I'm assuming that'd be... I I can't remember where you said that'd be in the top 10 or anything of all time, but I I think it's going to be... Yeah, I I think it's going to... That's aggressive and silly to project historic numbers. I, I get that, but I just uh, yeah. I, I think I just uh, explained why I love this defense so much. So why not? Mm-hmm. Why not go crazy? All right, cool. Yeah, that would uh, <laughs> if you put them at thirty, then that would tie them for the seventh best defense of all time. Do you think they like did anything unorthodox positioning wise? That's what I was wondering all year, whether they were doing some sort of stat cast stuff that none of us was even noticing because I get that they had a lot of really good defenders and maybe their pitchers are good at allowing weak contact too, but it was just such an extraordinary number and to sustain it over a full season and to be that much better than anyone else just it seemed to me like there had to be something going on that we weren't necessarily picking up on but maybe they actually just were that good yeah you know i think uh well first of all with fowler they changed how he was positioned right and he wasn't playing as deep and that that meant something and then they didn't shift a ton i want to say they were one of the least shifting teams in baseball Mm -hmm. so if you ask joe about that he he had this theory that the teams that they played just didn't have a lot of pull hitters so you wouldn't see that there it just that they didn't have the data suggested against it uh i I dug around some more with people that, you know, do handle the numbers, handle the shifting stuff and, and, and make suggestions on those topics. And, and they, some of them admitted it was just the way the talent that they had. They, they said, you know, when Javi's out there, why shift when, when Addison Russell has so much range, there's, there's really no reason to shift drastically. Yeah. You, you know they'll they'll push a guy a few feet here and there, uh, but but there weren't any drastic shifts. I I, th- I really think it was. I, I don't think they found some secret to their success uh, in the analytics outside of targeting strong defensive players. I think they've always valued defense. You kind of saw Madden push towards the the defense in late 2015 when he when he moved Castro when he benched Castro and put Russell at short you know he was upgrading the defense that was that was uh kind of it was uh, you know Castro was awful at that point uh but 
I think it was also pushed as a defensive upgrade. This is a clear defensive upgrade. There's We know we're getting something of value out of the defense without a doubt. We don't know what Russell's offense is yet uh, was the thought process, but we're, we're upgrading our defense significantly and, and they did. And and I think that's uh, I think it's just as simple as that. They uh, a little bit of luck in finding this, uh, you know, acquiring these strong defensive players, uh, guys like Chris Bryant, who were able to up their defense significantly from what people projected. Uh, he doesn't look like a, a liability at third base to me. I don't think I think the numbers agree with that. He's he's not a he's not a bad third baseman by any means, and that was definitely a question coming up. You know, he's not. I'm not sure if I'd label him as a future Gold Glover or anything, but there are times when I watch him and I think, man, he he gets to pretty much everything, and and uh, I can and I know scouts who think he's a plus defender. So, so he's. You're talking about players all over the field that are really plus defense. And and the last offseason, they really focused on upgrading the outfield defense and they go out and get Jason Hayward. So you're you're looking all over the field at players that they specifically targeted with the thought in mind that we want a, a, a great defense. And, you know, guys behind the plate were great at framing, great at calling the game, great at blocking pitches. You have you have a strong defense all around. And I, I think it was just the simple mentality that that's what that's what the front office wanted. Uh, Joe's obvi- Joe Madden obviously uh, is a big uh, believer in, in plus plus defenders all over the place uh, with his time in Tampa Bay. So I think uh, I think it was just an easy philosophy for everyone to get behind. Maybe the most well, there's a lot of statistically interesting players in the Cubs. Let's just get that out of the way. But <laughs> one of uh, the most enduringly interesting players is Hayward. You know, you weren't getting out of this without some Hayward <laughs> questions. We we've probably all many of us have seen the videos of Hayward working out, working his swing in the offseason. He's trying to get back to I believe he said what he was in what was it 2012, 2013, 2012. So he's trying to adjust his swing back to what it was then, even though incidentally, that's also the year he had the highest strike rate of his career whatever moving on (laughs) he is trying to change his swing but jason hayward has had a lot of different swings and stances over the course of his career so assuming you don't think he's as bad as he was last year where is sort of your jason hayward bounce back expectation do you think that he's going to be an offensive liability or or do you believe in him if only because he's only 27 years old yeah, I I mean, last year was far and away the worst year offensively. I mean, he was, what, like bottom five when it comes to weighted runs created. He was just a, a bad, bad offensive player, and it never, uh, it never got better. If you want to just throw out all the possibility of pressure, uh, the mental anxiety of being the big contract guy, and then struggling out of the gates and never being able to get comfortable, let's throw all that out and assume uh, that didn't have a significant impact. I, I, it's impossible to weigh how uh, how much that that mattered. Mechanically, he was clearly a mess. I, I didn't talk to anyone that said, "Oh no, I don't see anything wrong mechanically." <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I I think it, I mean even the most uh, amateur of scouts could see that he he was he had major issues. I, I I don't consider myself a scout, and I was like, whoa, what is this swing is just all over the place, and and I don't know, I don't see how it can work. And and it's one of those things where I think he got in his own head, and then the mechanics. I think he worked on it a lot, and it's about working on it and getting it right during batting practice is one thing. Uh, bringing it into the game is another. Uh, I think. Uh, John Maley, the hitting coach, I think Jed Hoyer, a lot of these guys called it, you know, as simple as muscle memory, right? So that's what they're working on now. The whole getting back to 2012, you know, I, I'm not sure if I love that whole 
idea. I just like the idea of getting back to what something that works, right? I, I don't think you need to get Jason Hayward to be a power guy. I, this was my, my my thought process in him signing him is they have a ton of power guys. You don't you don't need that prototypical right field power guy. You just need a guy that gets on base, makes contact, and plays elite defense, and is a quality clubhouse guy. Add all those things together, and he's he's worth that for this team. You know, maybe other teams doesn't it doesn't make sense for them to sign Jason Hayward at that cost. But what he was before last year, I think it made sense for the Cubs. Uh, what he was last year, if he's if if he doesn't significantly improve, this contract is just obviously a huge disaster. So what are my expectations? I expect a significant bounce back just because he was so bad. Is that going to be significantly above average? Like I, I believe. Um, there were about three out of the previous four years before last year. He, he was around like 120, 125 weighted runs created. I think uh, maybe that's asking too much. Maybe if I if I could see 100, 110 uh, with the defense he plays, the base running he gives, it, it, I, that's that's fine. Is that worth the money that he's being paid? Probably not. But it works in this lineup. It works with this team. Uh, you can kind of hide him uh, any deficiencies that he has if he's struggling against lefties. There's ways to work around that. I'm not willing to bank on him coming back full throttle this year because I I would see a week of games last year where he'd be, oh, wait, I'm seeing some some nice signs here. Uh, the outs are starting to be hard. Some, some balls are starting to fall. And then it would just go to uh, ground ball to second base, ground ball to second base uh, all over again. So I, I'm not ready to buy in. I've heard good things. I've heard good things in the offseason. He's he's apparently seeing live pitching now, and uh, coaches are liking what they're seeing. But hey, you know, uh, are coaches going to share with us that they're like, oh, it's still a disaster out there? Uh, I'm not- <laughs> still sucks. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I I'm 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 in the wait and see approach, but I do expect just I mean because this isn't some awful makeup guy that just you know won't put in the work so we know like with the with a lot of these guys i i trust they'll put in the work and get at least back to some area of competence i mean last year was not acceptable offensively you know after a few months i was defending him for a while and then after a while it's like i can't how am i supposed to defend this there's the offense is not getting any better so it has to be better than last year and i think it will I'm just not willing to say it gets back to what he was when he was really good. And that, like, like I said, I just, I'm, I'm not sure if 2012 is the way to go, but Hey, it, you know, uh, John Maley's a good hitting coach. He's had a lot of success with, uh, with other players. Uh, and, and maybe that's, uh, the route that Hayward wanted to go as well and felt comfortable, uh, trying to get back to, to something he knew worked and, and he knew he could, uh, maybe that was, uh, not too dissimilar from what he was trying to do last year. So it didn't feel like too drastic of a change either. Well, let me ask it this way. So Hayward looked pretty lousy all year, really lousy in the playoffs. Javier Baez looked great in the playoffs, at least for a while. And then the Indians sort of exposed his shortcomings as a hitter. But for a while there, he Mm -hmm. looked great and, you know, possible breakout player and everything. And we all sort of forgot that he wasn't really a great hitter during the regular season, despite all of his defensive strengths. So the steamer projection system has... 
Baez projected for a 95 WRC plus, just a little bit below average, and Hayward projected for a 105 WRC plus, which would be a little bit above average. What gap do you see between those guys and in which direction? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think I'd go too far off of that. I like what I saw from Baez, and even when you talk about the struggles in Cleveland, I think a lot of that against Cleveland was a lot of that was um, Javi is the type of guy that can uh, start to feel himself a little bit. He may try and do too much at the plate when he thinks he's really in a groove, and I think he uh, tried to do too much. And you kind of saw him take a step back and then reset. Uh, I want to say it was in game six. Uh, game six and seven, he looked a lot better at the plate. There were times when, yeah, you, you see, you know, he's, he's the type that is going to look bad every now and then. Uh, he has some holes, but I think he's much better than when he first came up. I, You know, I, I'd say, like, I'd be more comfortable with uh, bumping Javi up, like, five and, and being right at league average. And I wouldn't be much more aggressive with Hayward. I think that's the, the projections are probably about right right there. So uh, I'd be a little bit more optimistic on Baez and I wouldn't be shocked if he surprised us all and and you know really had a breakout at the plate because I think he did make some real uh some real changes and was slowly trying to figure things out at the plate as he got adjusted to a to a new role defensively being that roamer and uh i think he when i talked to him recently he was uh pretty adamant that he was an everyday player and that he's going to and he'd like to start focusing on one position uh so maybe all of that will help him just uh get used to you know start working out the kinks on offense full time and and really uh and really explode offensively well, I think Ben is usually the one who asks this question at the end of a team segment uh, where we are going to put you on the spot and we're going to ask you for a projected win total. So I'm going to actually ask you uh, two questions here. We've asked you to make a few predictions here about this, uh, specific Cubs players. So as the Cubs as a team go, question one. How many games do you think the Cubs are going to win this season? And question two, how many games worse than the Dodgers will that be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So I think last year was 103, and the year before that was 97. I did not think they'd match 97 last year just because that's hard to do. And I do not think they'll match 103 this year. But, you know, I'm going to go 95 wins. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that is... Uh, that is two games worse than the Dodgers. It's not eight games. It's not, two. No, I'm not going to go it's eight not, games. I'll not going to be two. eight. But you do. But you are <laughs> saying that the Cubs. You do think the Cubs will finish with a worse record than the Dodgers? I know I yeah, asked you a leading I mean, question. Sure, I, I'm just basically uh, not because of t like some crazy talent, mm -hmm. you know, difference or anything like that. I'm just kind of it's these predictions for me when I make them. I'm, I'm just kind of being random it, you know having some educated <laughs> guess behind it and say well uh, the cubs have been you know we're the clearly the best team in the league last year i expect a little bit of a dip back and and some randomness in the game to happen and i i like the dodgers a lot so they'll be the team that that happens to squeak out a few more wins than the cubs and that's that's just uh, you know my gut i guess <laughs> so our dodgers guy liked the cubs more than the dodgers and our cubs guy likes the dodgers more than <laughs> 
than the Cubs. <laughs> That's right. Well, you, trust me over McCullough. Come on. <laughs> right. Well, we got through a whole Cubs preview without mentioning most of the Cubs' best players, I think. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that makes sense. There's I too mean, many of them, man. Yeah. What are we yeah. supposed to ask about Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant? And I'm ben sure they're, they're and well, he, he was talking about Brian's defense. At yeah, least. All right. yeah. So all know, those all, all those guys are good. They're, they're still all really good, good players. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right. You can find Sahadev on Twitter at Sahadev Sharma. You can find him writing at the Athletic Chicago. You can read his essay in the Baseball Prospectus Annual. Sahadev, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Okay, we'll be right back with Jack Moore on the Brewers. By the way, one of the hazards of the season preview series is occasionally variable audio quality. Jack had a bit of a microphone feedback issue that wasn't entirely audible to us while we were talking, so I did my best to clean it up. You can still hear a trace of it, but Jack is great, so he's worth a listen. We'll be right back. All right, so we are continuing now with the team with the second worst projection. Again, preliminary, doesn't include zips, et cetera, et cetera, caveat, caveat, the Milwaukee Brewers. And to talk about the Brewers, we are bringing in Jack Moore, who writes for many a place, including the Hardball Times and the Guardian, and most relevant perhaps to this conversation, Baseball Prospectus Milwaukee. And he also wrote the Baseball Prospectus annual essay for the Milwaukee Brewers. Hey, Jack. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm going to clear aside pretty quickly and just let Jeff ask a a bunch of questions about his (laughs) beloved rebuilding Brewers and Keon Broxton and any other brewer who strikes his fancy, but I will just lead things off by saying that this has been a pretty slow offseason for the Brewers in contrast to last winter, which was almost frenetic, and David Stearns took over and turned over a, a lot of the roster in almost Jerry DePoto-esque fashion, and I think most people liked what they did. I believe Dave Cameron said they won the offseason, but obviously the, the results weren't there immediately. It's more of a long-term thing, but... Were you surprised, disappointed that there wasn't more activity this winter, or did they already kind of do what they needed to do? I think what's going on right now is just a lot of house cleaning. If you look at if you look at some stuff on the compensation pages here at Baseball Perspectives, like the Brewers have the least amount of players with non-minimum contracts at eight. The next closest is the Padres at thirteen. If you look at twenty eighteen and beyond, they only have two players under contract, which is Ryan Braun and Eric Thames. So it's. I understand what they're going for. I'm going to be disappointed if they don't start using their financial resources a little bit more uh, quickly. Because you know, like I, I get that you don't want to spend a lot of money on aging free agents uh, when you're not going to win. But you know, spending money on players who you might be able to flip in a trade, for instance, is I think a smart way to use that resource. So I want to see them. I, I'm not disappointed with it right now, but I will be disappointed if they don't start spending in the next uh, off season or two. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 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 enough beating around the bush. Let's talk about Keon Broxton. <laughs> we got to talk about Keon Broxton. So, <laughs> Keon Broxton came over uh, from the Pirates in a trade that nobody cared about. Uh, what was it? Jason Rogers, right? Went mm-hmm. the other yep. direction. I believe he's he's since lost whatever job he had with the Pirates. The Brewers got back this guy named Keon Broxton, who is one of those toolsy center fielders who strikes out too much. So. Broxton comes up to Milwaukee and he's immediately terrible. Then he goes away. Then he comes back and he's great. 
made some swing changes. This is a, not an unusual story. So the thing that I love the most about Broxton, and we're going to get to one of his teammates uh, soon, but uh, Jeff Zimmerman, who works for Fangraphs and does other stuff as well, he has taken the exit velocities that are available publicly, and he's corrected them because the exit velocities that are publicly reported have a lot of balls that are missing, mostly weekly hit baseballs. Long story short, out of everyone with at least 50 batted balls last season, Keon Broxton had the eighth best average exit velocity of anyone in all of baseball. He was basically tied, but a little better than Christian Yelich, better than Miguel Sano. There's Mark Trumbo is there also below Broxton. He's looking up at seven names, one teammate. We'll get to him later again. But talk to me about Keon Broxton and explain why you think he's going to be this year's National League MVP. <laughs> yeah, Broxton is a super fascinating player because, I don't know, he's fun to watch because he's just... He plays really wild, although you necessarily know that because he does walk 15% of the time. But it's just like there's there's so much explosiveness in his game on both sides because uh, he's also an excellent defensive center fielder who will go up, run around, make jumping, diving catches, all that kind of stuff. So it's just really fun, especially on teams that are bad and don't have you know the usual kinds of excitement that you want from a baseball team like winning. It's great to have a player like him who is go- you know is going to make something ridiculous happen on the field, whether it's uh you know, swinging way too hard and missing, or, you know, mashing a big home run, stealing bases, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, can a guy who strikes out 36% of the time, which is what he did last year, can a guy like that actually be productive? That's that's a tough question. He needed a, a 370 Babbitt to be as good as he was last year. I don't know if he can do that again. But I don't know, This is he's like the exact kind of player that you want to see a team like the Brewers taking a chance on and giving playing time. Team that was more confident that it could contend, would probably not want to take the chance that his performance last year was real. But the Brewers have nothing to lose by just saying, hey, go out there, take your 500, 600 plate appearances, see what you can do with it. And I'm all about it. I think the my favorite, aside from the StatCast thing, uh, my favorite Keon Broxton, fun fact, it's not that he was arrested this offseason, that's bad. Uh, it is that <laughs> when he was 12, he was apparently a competitive skateboarder, which is uh, not a common history for many Major League Baseball yeah. players. So Keon Broxton, he's the man. He's awesome. He's going to be the best center fielder in the National League. I, I haven't fact-checked that, but he probably is. <laughs> I hope his contract prevents him from skateboarding. Right. <laughs> I think it would, probably, right? Hey, he's got an athleticism that you don't often see in baseball, though, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with that uh, that skateboarding history. Yeah. So the Brewers, it seems like, have sort of left no stone unturned in their pursuit of talent, and they've signed a bunch of indie leaguers, including a former Sonoma Stomper. They have signed Eric Thames. I believe it's Thames. There's no way to pronounce that name that mm-hmm. sounds correct, but <laughs> when I talked to him on my other podcast, that's what I said, so I'm sticking with it. And... <laughs> You know, he had incredible numbers, but of course he's coming from Korea and the projections are good, but they're pretty big error bars around that. And they acquired a bunch of guys who sort of had been prospects and maybe some of the shine had come off them. You know, someone like Jonathan VR, who of course was excellent for them last year. And it seems like they have made some really good finds, you know, Junior Guerra or whoever, you know, they're, they've, they've kind of just been out of the box so far, mm-hmm. it seems like. I don't know if there's like a specific Brewers type player that you can identify right now, or it just seems to me like they are kind of the most 
obviously, I don't know, willing to explore any avenue of acquiring talent team right now. Yeah, they're going for every lottery ticket they can. I think that's a, a great strategy for a team in total rebuilding mode like they are. Yeah, Eric, Eric Thames being the most obvious example, but they also signed uh, Naftali Feliz to be their closer, another you know great post-hype example mm-hmm. player like that. They're going to be giving guys like... I mean, Willie Peralta has been in their system the whole time, but he came up in the second half of last year and started looking really good again, so they're down to take a chance on him going forward. Uh, I like the acquisition of Travis Shaw from the Red Sox. Again, another younger player who has a chance to be part of the future. It's What I like about this Brewers roster, I'm fully aware that they're not going to contend, but when you look up and down this roster, basically the only position I see that where I don't think there's any chance of like the catcher of the future being on the roster. Every other position, I feel like, yeah, uh, Travis Shaw might stick at third. Orlando RC, of course, might stick at short. VR at second. Thames at first. And across the outfield, we already talked about Broxton. Uh, Ryan Braun's in the left. And, you know, he's the best asset this team has at this point. And right field, Domingo Santana, who was hurt last year, but has shown huge power potential. Hold on, don't spoil that. That's Lots next. Of, like there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Shot to Jet Bandy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Bandy showed interesting power for the Angels last year, too, and so it'll be interesting to see what he does in a better hitter's park. Again, it's like there's no way that all of these guys are going to be as good as uh, you can see their ceilings being. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no chance. But there's a lot to like from every spot on this roster, I think. Speaking of a lot to like from every spot on the ro- a lot of spots on the roster. So Domingo Santana, I already gave the Keon Broxton exit velocity fun fact. That's great. He hit the ball super hard. Domingo Santana hit the ball even more super hard. On average, these are uh, the the top average exit velocities in Major League Baseball. Miguel Cabrera, 91.3. That's great. Tied with Nelson Cruz, 91.3. Identically great. Third place. Domingo Santana, 91.0 miles per hour. Now, granted, that's a tie with Tommy Pham, which that's weird, but Domingo Santana (laughs) is right there. Really, really good power. He's had good on-base numbers in the past. He has a really good eye based on the fact that he doesn't go much out of the zone. If anything, his problem seems to be taking called third strikes. I know that Santana is maybe not Broxton's level of athletic he doesn't rate as a great defender and he probably never will but is Domingo Santana this is gonna sound crazy is Domingo Santana the best hitter on the Brewers team right now I mean I I still think it's Ryan Braun I I think Ryan Braun I'm personally fascinated by the way that Ryan Braun over the last few years has turned into he used to be a total uh pull power header power hitter dead pull over the last few years basically ever since he had that hip injury that was limiting him in 2013 2014 he's turned into the best opposite field hitter in the league which i think is amazing but yeah uh santana is probably the second best he has a super long swing too which i think helps to explain why he strikes out so much but Mm -hmm. oh my god when he when he makes contact the ball both sounds and looks like noticeably different than your average major league hitter so yeah, I think there's something very real going on with those uh, exit velocity numbers, even if uh, I think it's pretty clear that he doesn't have the total like hitter ability that a guy like Miguel Cabrera does to you know control the strike zone, go to all fields with not just uh, home run power, but line drive gap power. Like That's not quite there yet for him, but uh, there's so much potential in that swing, and especially in a park like Milwaukee where the fences are so close. A guy like him is going to get helped by just turning some pop flies into home runs too so yeah i think there could be big things in his future there's got to be some amount of smugness that 
like Carlos Gomez was so bad after he was traded. And then you end up with Brett Phillips and Santana and Josh Hader and even another guy who I don't know much about. But like that's I know that you only like decide on a trade with the information we have at the time. But that's just it looks so great now. What a trade. Yeah. So there's that. And there's the fact that the Mets decided that uh, Carlos Gomez, when they uh, nixed his physical, they nixed that trade over the physical. Mm-hmm. Like, they mm-hmm. could have, the Brewers very easily could have ended up with Wilmer Flores and Zach Wheeler, which that would have, that looks so bad in comparison <laughs> right now. So, yeah, that, that trade is just, I, I can't, I can't imagine a better scenario for the Brewers than what's happened with that trade. And people were so anti-Mets when that happened. Then Gomez was terrible. It's like, give them a little yeah. bit of credit, even if it wasn't... Yeah. A- anyway, go ahead. Hey, Ben, you've got a question. <laughs> well, we have to ask the obligatory Bron question, just like we asked the obligatory Puig question on the Dodgers preview. And obviously, those two guys have been linked in trade rumors before. So as you mentioned, Bron has become a different hitter, still an excellent hitter. And I think it's probably a surprise to some people that he's still a Milwaukee Brewer. How long do you expect that state of affairs to persist? Yeah, I'm fairly surprised that he's still on the team. If you had asked me in November or whatever, I would have said, yeah, I don't think he'll be on the opening day roster. So at this point, I would be surprised if he got traded before the season starts because you know, you really don't see too many blockbuster trades like that in this time, you know, this February time between uh, spring training and the start of the season. So I guess I would expect him to go into July deal at this point. I would be really surprised if they keep him around. So one of uh, one of the standout things that the Brewers had last year as a team was, uh, you already know this, but the Brewers, well, actually, let's start with the Orioles, because the Orioles as a team stole 19 bases. That's very bad, at least if you judge a team by its stolen bases, which you shouldn't. But anyway, 19 was the fewest. The Mets as a team, they were third last. They stole 42 bases. The Brewers as a team, stole 42 more bases than the team with the next most stolen bases. They stole 181. That's the highest mark in the major leagues in seven years, it looks like. So they, uh, the Brewers ran a ton. They weren't necessarily the greatest base running team around. They weren't the Padres in that regard, but they were extremely aggressive. They have a quick and athletic roster. You've got Jonathan Villar, of course, who stole 62 bases. Hernan Perez, who is another sort of pretty good under the radar find stole a 34 bases how much of this base dealing do you expect to carry over versus how much of this do you think was just trying to take free bases from teams that weren't paying attention well i i think it makes sense with the roster that the brewers have and um i think given that the brewers are fully aware that they're in a rebuilding mode that they're totally happy to be aggressive on the bases because it kind of doesn't matter if you get thrown out at that point and i think it helps to build the value of guys like vr perez broxton like VR very well might end up being traded before uh, the Brewers are contenders, right? Like, and having, you know, two 60 stolen base seasons if, you know, if he does it again this year, that would look so good on, uh, for his trade value if, if that comes up, say, next offseason. So I, I think there's a little more to it than just, you know, game strategy. I think there's also some value strategy going on there. Mm-hmm. I, I think it makes a lot of sense if you have these guys, you want to see can, how how much... How much can we let them run? How efficient will they be? Is it a legitimate strategy to say, hey, Jonathan, every time you get on base, you should be looking to run? <laughs> and and so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good time to at least evaluate that. I think the um, uh, as offense goes down, and it seems like offense is decreasing a little bit over the last few years, uh, the stolen base is going to become more valuable. So especially like since it's become such a, 
the like the main way to score is through home runs. Like being able to take an extra base and be able to score without that home run is going to be super value valuable, I think. So there's a post by Carson Sestouli in January, his his Zips preview for the Milwaukee Brewers. And I think he said that there were no players projected for more than three wins. And there were 20 players projected for one win or better. Mm -hmm. So the Brewers have sort of solved part of the problem, (laughs) which is not having terrible players and giving up lots of roster spots to replacement level or sub-replacement level people. But the other part of the equation is also having some star-level players. And maybe we've talked about a, a couple of the most promising players in that regard. But are you concerned at all, I guess, both about figuring out places to play everyone if there are 20 players projected to be decent or more than 20 projected to be decent can you fit all of them in somehow and are you concerned at all for the long term that maybe the the star potential is not there to the degree the degree that it needs to be at least at the major league level yeah no it's absolutely concerning you can develop as many average or just above average guys as you want, and it's not going to matter, especially in a market like Milwaukee where you can't rely on drawing the stars through free agency. Like The, the type of players that I feel like the Brewers will be able to get through free agency when they're ready to get, contend are the mid-level kind of guys who might make one or two all-star games in their career but aren't going to be perennial all-star guys by any stretch of the imagination. Guys that are going to fill out the roster and fill those the holes that the Brewers will event, uh, inevitably have. I think Orlando Arcia could be a star. His glove is ridiculous. If he develops any sort of a bat, he'll be he will be a legitimate uh, star. I think something like Elvis Andrews, right? Especially if Orlando Arcia's bat doesn't develop, he could have Elvis Andrews' career. If it does, he could have an even better one. VR looked uh, maybe not superstar, but potential all-star last year, so I thought that was good. And we've already talked about future National League MVP Keon Broxton quite a bit. <laughs> so uh, I'm very happy about those three spots, but uh, it's gonna it's gonna come down to how how many of the top prospects they have in the minor leagues hit their ceilings. So it, it's really hard to measure that whole um, do they have enough star power question at this point. Mm-hmm. I know earlier you uh, you said that you believe Braun is the best hitter on the Brewers. Not a controversial statement to make. You believe Domingo Santana is. Uh, the second best, if I uh, heard you correctly. So here's I want you to here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read down in descending order of WRC plus the projected best hitting first baseman, and I want you to interject as soon as you hear a name that you think Eric Thames will hit at least Ooh. as well as or better than. Okay, okay. you ready? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. This is good. We're gonna start. Miguel Cabrera, Joey Votto, Anthony Rizzo, Paul Goldschmidt, Freddie Freeman, Carlos Santana. Gregory Bird, interesting. Edwin mm. Encarnacion, <laughs> Hanley Ramirez, Jose Abreu, Brandon Belt, Albert Pujols, Chris Davis, Lucas Duda, Pedro Alvarez. Okay, Steve. I think I think that's the one, Pedro <laughs> yeah. Alvarez. Well I, well, I was surprised to see Pedro Alvarez at 114 projection. Yeah. That's actually above Will Myers and the worse Eric Hosmer. But okay, so you've got Pedro Alvarez projected at a 114 WRC+. Plus. If, uh, and that actually that actually sounds pretty reasonable for Thames, I think. That's it. All right, so we've got Thames at uh, you put Thames at a one fourteen, and where does where does Steamer have him? So Steamer's got Thames. I think they love him quite a bit. They've got him at a uh, one twenty four. So you're a little mm-hmm. a little lower on Thames than Steamer is, but that's just one system, and you are your own man. So congratulations on being independent from oh, the projection systems. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I try to be reasonable with these guys. I, I think they're, I like, I absolutely love the signing. I don't think there's uh, much better f- available for the money that they paid, first of all. Like, if he if he is that uh, 115 WSC Plus that we landed on, I, that would be good for the, the money that the Brewers spent. That would be mm-hmm. just fine for, what, $25 million over three years? Like, <laughs> Not even. I think it's 15 yeah. Oh, yeah, 17, yeah, 16 and a half, right? So that's great. Awesome. But, like, oh, man, I know it's the Korean League. I know that numbers in foreign leagues can be weird. I know that it's basically the equivalent of, if the if the Japanese League is the equivalent of AAA, the Korean League has to be below that. I, I don't know exactly if it's, like, double A or high A or what. But, man, if anybody hit like that in any league, we would be freaking out about him. So, I don't know. I'm ready, I'm ready to see what he's got. Yeah, he's almost as good as peak level Gates Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) So the farm system is one of the best in baseball. I think Keith Law had it sixth. I think others probably have it higher, if anything. Is there a particular strength of the farm system? I don't know how much of a prospect junkie you are, but having a really good farm system tends to turn people into prospect (laughs) junkies, at least when it comes to their own team. So anyone you're especially excited about or any strengths or weaknesses of the system that stand out? Well, strength really feels like outfielders right now. Between Phillips, uh, who I already talked about, Corey Ray, the first-round pick last year, who is, you know, just He's got all the tools he could possibly ask for. And I really like the acquisition of Lewis Brinson from the Rangers. So those three outfielders right there, uh, that's that's more outfield talent than a lot of systems will have top to bottom. So I, I think that's something to be really excited about. And mm-hmm. jo- Josh Hader, the left-handed pitcher, has drawn comparison to Chris Sale and won the best pitcher that the Brewers have developed this millennium is either Ben Sheets or Giovanni Gallardo. <laughs> Uh, we're we're gonna jump at any comparison, no matter how ridiculous it is. So uh, I'm super excited for him. Okay, well, if you want to make ridiculous comparisons, how close do you think Zach Davies is to being the next Kyle Hendricks? Oh, I like that. I think he might actually be pretty close to his ceiling already, uh-huh. in terms of you know he he had what a uh, mid three ZRA kind of kind of guy. I don't really expect him to become the kind of like Cy Young contender out of nowhere that Kyle Hendricks was. Uh, I think he might be what Kyle Hendricks was for the couple years before that. Mm-hmm. I think I think that would make a lot of sense given his he's got multiple good pitches. He can change speeds on you. He doesn't have any individual pitch that's going to blow you away though. That's right. the thing. So I, I don't really see him becoming more than a number three. So how far away is this team? When will the full flowering of the David Stearns Brewers take place? Um, I I think I think they are as close as two years away. And, and it all depends on how willing they are to, you know, make the big uh, splash in free agency that I think there's no reason why they can't when you look at their financial future, right? Like, the only player they have under contract beyond 2017, at, or the only players, as I mentioned, it's Braun and Thames. And Braun probably won't be on the team next year. So that's that's all of $6 million committed beyond 2017. They better be willing to spend some money. And if they do that and, like, three or four of these, you know, lottery ticket kind of players that we've been talking about hit, and then a couple of these top prospects, not even all of them, just a couple of them, you that's a core. Like, that's that's something that you can work around. And, I mean, yeah, it's going to be hard to compete with the Cubs who, given their uh, finances and their farm system and the team that they already have, they're going to be perennial contenders. They're going to have to deal with the Cardinals, too. It's it's a really tough division. So maybe maybe it will be longer. I, I like the I like the foundation that they're building. Well, you have to remember that all that, or at least a lot of that future money is going to end up going to Keon Broxton. Right, of <laughs> course. <laughs> 
with the attendance that they regularly bring, like despite the fact that they've been kind of hot garbage for the last uh, few years, <laughs> yeah, uh, they've still been drawing attendance over two million fans a year. They still consistently rank in the top half of the National League in attendance, despite being in the smallest market in baseball. And to me, that that tells me that there is absolutely no reason why they should have to be the lowest uh, payroll team in the league. And I get why they're doing it right now, because they are rebuilding. There's no reason to be investing in 30-plus-year-old players who have no chance of being on a winning team. But when they're ready, back in 2011, I believe, they went over $100 million in payroll. And I think Mark Adonazio is the kind of owner who, like, he didn't buy the Milwaukee Brewers to make money, or at least only to make money on the Milwaukee Brewers, right? He bought them because he enjoys a baseball team and he enjoys watching the baseball team that he owns win. You can really tell that when, uh, you know, when he'll join the uh, broadcast booth or whatever, stuff like that. So I, I think that he cares enough to sink his money in when it's time. And I hope he proves me right there. You have to remember, as cold as it gets in the winter, the Brewers draw well because probably when it's time to think about buying season tickets, it's so cold there's nothing more appealing than the thought mm-hmm. of sitting close to hot garbage. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Hey, they got a roof, you know? <laughs> All right. You want to take us out with a win total prediction for this upcoming season? Sure, yeah. Uh, they won 73 games last year. I think they're going to be the same basic kind of team this year. People have been thinking that it would be steady improvement. I I don't necessarily think that's how this will go. So I'm going to I'm going to go with a slight decrease actually and go with 70 wins on the dot. All right. Well, you can follow Jack in all of his various outlets. Probably an easy way to do that is by following him on Twitter <laughs> at jh underscore more. Jack, always good talking to you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support, Danny Pankratz, Alex Conway, Jeff Fang, Mark Eschen, and Ryan Klulau. Thank you. By the way, since we finished recording, Jeff has already written about Matt Wieters and Scott Boris, and he did confirm that there's no relationship between a catcher's called strikes above average rate, according to Baseball Prospectus, and the velocity of the pitches he caught. So that further refutes the argument. Not that anyone in front offices is really paying attention to the research that Scott Boris's stat people are doing. It's just the occasional owner who buys into it too much. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Contact me and Jeff via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or by messaging us through Patreon. And we'll be back next week with the Red Sox and Reds. Yes, we will actually talk about the Reds. Have a wonderful weekend. Most of my old friends, I can only stand for the weekend. But that doesn't